The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Because we intend to fire our people up so much, until if they can't have their equal share in the house, they'll burn it down. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice. Welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, where we're charting some of the key moments in the transformative history of the US civil rights movement, the fight for equality that dominated mid-20th century America, with a legacy that continues to shape the world around us today. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and in this six-part series, I'm speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined this struggle for racial equality. In each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and consider its place in the wider fight for civil rights. In our last episode, we were at the White House in 1964, as President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the landmark Civil Rights Act into law. This time, we're focusing on one of the most defining and divisive activist figures of the 1960s, Malcolm X. Let's start not at the beginning of Malcolm's life, but at its end. On the 21st of February 1965, in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, New York, Malcolm X took to the stage ready to speak to the 400-strong crowd who had gathered to hear about a new activist group he had founded, the Organisation of Afro-American Unity. By this point, he had been at the sharp edge of activism for 13 years and was known for his impressive oratory skills and his championing of black nationalism. His pregnant wife and four daughters were among those gazing up at him from the benches 
waiting for him to speak. Before he could get past the opening remarks, however, three men emerged from the back of the room, one of them holding a sawn-off shotgun. He ran towards the podium and fired, hitting Malcolm X squarely in the chest. The other two men followed suit with shots of their own, before all three ran from the room. Malcolm was pronounced dead within 15 minutes. Malcolm X had made many enemies in his life, from across the political spectrum. But who had pulled the trigger? I spoke to Clarence Lang, Susan Welch-Dean of the College of the Liberal Arts at Penn State, who was writing a biography of Malcolm X, to find out more. It's important to establish context here. After his release from prison in 1952, Malcolm quickly became one of the most spellbinding proponents of the Nation of Islam's worldview and the teachings of leader Elijah Muhammad. He was a tireless organizer and founder of the Nation of Islam's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks. By the early 1960s, he had helped transform the Nation of Islam from a small sect into a national organization with over 200 temples and had risen to become Muhammad's national spokesperson. At the same time, he grew disenchanted with the Nation of Islam's lack of secular political involvement, particularly at a time when an epic struggle for Black freedom was occurring across the nation and national liberation struggles were unfolding across Africa and the global South more generally. And what he began to envision but couldn't accomplish in the confines of the Nation of Islam was a fusion of Black nationalist ideas and strategies with the mass mobilization and direct action approach of the mainstream civil rights movement. And so the limits of the Nation of Islam and its public action became a major source of tension for Malcolm and within the organization. The immediate catalyst for his departure from the Nation of Islam occurred in November 1963, when Elijah Muhammad suspended him for publicly characterizing the assassination of President John F. Kennedy as a matter of chickens coming home to roost. More fundamentally, the suspension was a culmination of internal tensions regarding the Nation of Islam's distance from practical civil rights involvement, personal jealousies and corruption within Muhammad's inner circle, the discovery that Muhammad had fathered children with personal secretaries, and Malcolm's own growing skepticism with the Nation of Islam's racialist doctrines. So after leaving the Nation of Islam in 1964, he made two tours of the African continent, including a religious pilgrimage to Mecca, formed the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which was modeled after the Organization of African Unity, and generally sought to both intervene more actively in the U.S. civil rights struggle and further internationalize it by drawing the connection between U.S. racial oppression and colonialism abroad and the struggles around that. As we know, this effort was ended on February 21st, 1965, when he was gunned down during a meeting of the Organization of Afro-American Unity at Harlem's Audubon Ballroom. Now, several individuals from the Nation of Islam were arrested, charged, and eventually sentenced to prison for Malcolm's murder. And this is where his history is important. The narrative about their guilt has changed over the nearly 60 years since Malcolm's assassination. And we know both more and less about that murder. But I can confidently say that while his murder served political interests for the Nation of Islam and his leadership, 
and his leadership certainly created a general climate that made Malcolm's death a real possibility, the interest served extended well beyond the Nation of Islam to U.S. government entities, including the executive branch of the American government. As Clarence explained, Malcolm faced threats from all sides. Although three members of the Nation of Islam were originally convicted of his assassination, the case remains murky. Some believe that the FBI and the CIA may have been actively involved in Malcolm's death, though such claims remain unproven. And when it comes to the three men convicted of the murder, the story has become even more complicated in recent years. Two of them, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, have always maintained their innocence. The third convicted man, Mujahid Abdul Halim, also said the pair were innocent, though he confessed to his own guilt. As recently as 2021, Aziz and Islam were both exonerated, with the New York State Supreme Court declaring their convictions a failure of justice. Going back to Malcolm's story, in the years before his death, he had long been aware that his life might be at risk. You read the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it's, it's, it's very clear, he makes clear, that he expected not to live long and he expected to die violently. And in fact, I mean, the earliest memory that Malcolm recounts in the autobiography is of his home being attacked by masked night riders. So the autobiography has a very consistent thread of violence as a key feature in his life. As Clarence alluded to, Malcolm had lived with white supremacist violence since childhood, when he went by Malcolm Little. So he was born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. He was one of several children. And his parents were both leaders and organizers in the Universal Negro Improvement Association, founded by Marcus Garvey. Like so many civil rights figures, he was born into a family already waging the black freedom struggle. His parents were, were fearless, they were tireless, but they were also targets of harassment and repression due to their political activities. Malcolm's father died, many would argue was killed, as a result of his political activities, which left Malcolm's mother with the difficult task of raising a large number of children on her own. And the pressures from what we now would call family social services and her insistence on living a life of dignity um, and respect and, and self-respect became too much for her to bear. The children were eventually taken from her and Malcolm was sent to live with relatives in Boston where he grew into adulthood. And given the experiences that he had had in school, but also more broadly in, in life, he went from being someone who was intensely interested in learning and intensely interested in school, and in fact, um, as a preteen, had been at one point the student body president or president of, of his class. But as many Black youth of that age, and unfortunately today, have experienced his ambitions 
in the classroom, his love of learning was was smothered by the racism that he experienced. And as a consequence, and as an alternative, eventually he immersed himself in a life of crime that led ultimately to his imprisonment in 1946 on a charge of burglary, breaking and entering might have been a specific charge. During his time in prison, he became involved with the Nation of Islam. As early on in in his um, incarceration, he was known as Satan, which suggests he was not, uh, if you will, among the best behaved inmates when he was incarcerated. And it was in that context that he discovered, or if you will, was discovered by individuals in the Nation of Islam who introduced him to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And that, again, I'll take something of a leap, must have been familiar to him if we think about his own parents having been part of the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Garvey movement, that was consistent in many ways with the Black nationalism that had helped to anchor his youth. Maybe not intellectually, but if we think about the connections to to the family. And that discovery also, I would argue, reconnected him to the love of learning that he had had as a preteen. But in this case, it gave a direction to the frustrations, the anger, the resentments that probably had kept him alive in prison and fallen into despair. So prison was um, paradoxically uh, a moment of rediscovery. The Nation of Islam has long been linked to controversy, with media coverage referring to their ideology as the hate that hate produced, and the FBI labelling them an anti-American and violent cult. When Malcolm X was part of the group, he embraced the idea that white people were so-called devils. I asked Clarence to tell me more about the organization's reputation. Yes, it's, it's very controversial and it's remained so, for certain. So, And certainly during Malcolm's tenure in the organization, it was very much uh, controversial. So I'll start by saying the Nation of Islam was one of a number of similar Black nationalist sects or organizations that formed during the during the 1930s, during the the Great Depression. Many of them growing out of the Midwest. Certainly the Nation of Islam emerged out of Detroit and developed a stronghold in Chicago. And its core beliefs had to do with a vision of of people of African descent in the United States as being, if you will, the original people, Allah's chosen people who found themselves in the wilderness of America in a society that was controlled and ruled by what they called devils, referring to white people. And the goal was to develop parallel, independent, autonomous institutions in terms of education, in terms of business, in terms of other facets of of life to essentially build a parallel society to advance their interests and preserve themselves as Muslims or one version of being a Muslim 
because their approach to Islam certainly was not orthodox as we would, uh, most of us would, would understand it. To build these institutions, to preserve themselves, to advance their interests, to quote unquote, do for self, pending Allah's wrath on the white devils. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This call for empowered separatism and black autonomy, rather than holding out hope for the promise of integration, was a key hallmark of black nationalist ideology. And so you can imagine, given Malcolm's experiences, given the, the, the road he had traveled as a youth and as a young man, the anger he must have had during the early periods of his incarceration, how that particular worldview would have spoken to him. It certainly did to others who had joined before him. After his release from prison, Malcolm was determined to spread the messages of the Nation of Islam across the country. He adopted the surname X in deference to his ancestral African surname that had been erased by slavery. As well as founding or reorganising various Nation of Islam temples and creating the organisation's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, Malcolm X also became one of the organization's leading spokesmen. With Malcolm as the voice of the group, membership soared, with the group claiming as swelled as high as 500,000. What made him so popular? He was, uh, I'll use this word carefully, but I'll use it. He was genuine. So if we think about the kind of experiences that Black people had in the 20th century, the migration the settling into these urban communities, the kinds of lifestyles they were exposed to, the work that they did. Malcolm experienced it in all of this contradictory diversity. And so even going to, to, to prison, and he had a way of, of, of saying, because this is well before mass incarceration, and in many cases, people were ashamed to admit that they had been incarcerated or their families were. And he could say, listen, I've been a hustler. I've been a drug addict. I've been in prison. And in fact, that was part of his narrative. And look at what I've been able to become out of that due to the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He must be great, right? Islam will do this for you. And I think that that gave him an appeal Right, that he was genuine. He understood black working class culture. That was the base of the Nation of Islam, working class culture at that particular time. He understood it so intimately and could speak from that well 
of knowledge. But then he was just also just a, a tireless organizer. We don't talk about this a lot. We think of him as someone who gave speeches, and yes, he did, but he really took seriously his ministry in Harlem and, and elsewhere where he, where he landed and did work and really ministered in that classic sense. He was a minister in that he ministered to the interests of the people in, in, in the communities that, that he served. And he also exemplified a model of, of self-improvement, that this is someone who could go to prison and come out and autodidact was really important. And then I'll lastly say that he had a tremendous capacity for change, which I think was important with the dealings that he had with individuals outside of the Nation of Islam. So his ministry, in part, put him in communication with a broad set of individuals and other activists. And this is, in part, how the friction began, began to develop, that there are these other folks who are engaging in different ways that the Nation of Islam will not and while he disagrees with some of their beliefs in terms of integration as it was understood and what have you, he admired their action, the fact that they were engaged and wanted to see the Nation of Islam engaged in a similar kind of a, a, kind of a manner. And so just as he influenced many of the individuals he came into contact with, he was a human being. He was influenced by those engagements as well and began to have his own yearnings for the things that he wanted to do to more actively intervene in the so-called civil rights movement or civil rights struggle of the period of time. Those things really, I think, made a difference in, in terms of how he was able to have such an impact on such a broad number of people, notwithstanding some of the narrowness of some of the precepts that he preached. But he was, in, in that sense, a, a humanist in a very basic kind of a way. After his suspension from the Nation of Islam and his eventual decision to distance himself from the group, Malcolm X then struck out on his own and set up his own group called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which was founded to try and strengthen the bonds between African-Americans and African people. It's worth re-emphasising here that this era was also the time of decolonization, when scores of nations across the globe were freeing themselves of the confines of empire and forging new national identities. Although Malcolm's ideas morphed over time, he was always staunchly committed to the cause of black nationalism. But broadly, he adhered to a black nationalist philosophy, the key principles of which were, one, Black people constituted a people based on history, based on experience. Two, Black people had the right to autonomy, not just simply independence, but autonomy, as well as sovereignty. And by that, I mean a sense of independence rooted in some sense of place, whether that would have been a independent Black nation, as was part of the, the conversation in those circles, or some other kind of formation, spatially defined or geographically defined. Along with that, this sense of, of, of Black people needing to be educated about themselves, to have a positive sense of themselves, to rejuvenate and reform themselves. So Malcolm was personally ascetic, no drinking, smoking, strict diet. These were precepts of the Nation of Islam, by the way, but he adopted those. And certainly, and this was something that, that was controversially ascribed to him, this belief 
in the right of Black people as all autonomous, sovereign people had to the right of self-defense. And I want to make clear that, that that's not necessarily a Black nationalist principle. Um, it certainly is consistent with those ideas. But I would be hesitant to say that, uh, you know, the idea that, that people have the right to defend their bodies and themselves is a Black nationalist principle. There were mainstream liberal uh, civil rights activists who held the same view. In the 60s and 70s, amid state and segregationist violence, the ideas of self-defense and autonomy, which were rooted in long-standing Black traditions, soared in popularity. I asked Ashley Farmer, an associate professor at the University of Texas, why Black nationalism gained new traction during this time period. So many people think of the evolution of civil rights as Rosa Parks set down in 1955. There was a Civil Rights Act in 1964, a Voting Rights Act in 1965. And then Black people's lives were somewhat but not greatly materially better. Even with the intervention of federal legislation, we still had lower job rates, segregated housing, and you know daily racial discrimination. Everyday life was still very difficult. You still were largely marginalized from most jobs. And if you got a job that a white person could get, you were usually paid less money. These issues and um, civil rights did not end residential and housing segregation. So you were often trapped in the poorest neighborhoods, the least productive land if you were in an agricultural space. You were still overly surveilled by the police and everyday life was still quite difficult. And even if you could vote and exercise your right to vote, there was still a concerted effort to make sure that laws that were on the books were still disadvantaging black people. I'd also like to point out that during this time, we're also in the middle of the Vietnam War. And we see a disproportionate number of black men going to war through the draft than white men. And this also puts kind of the world of racism in sharp relief. On the one hand, you're being asked to go and defend America in Vietnam against people that are not white and that you have maybe never heard of and certainly don't feel like you have any real animus against. And then you come back and you're still treated as a sexist class citizen, even though you've served your country. So all of these things are making people really question the values that America is pretending to uphold and saying, is it actually really possible for African-Americans to enter into the American nation state and democracy on equal terms? Or do we need to try to find another way here? So people turn towards a more kind of militant and kind of separatist form of organizing with the understanding that appealing to the American government always for these rights and appealing to our white counterparts for these rights was not always going to get us where we needed to be. But I want to encourage listeners to think about the relationship between black power and civil rights is a little bit more complicated. Since Africans have landed here in America, there has always been an interest in self-determination, somewhat of an interest in self-defense community control and separation. It ebbed and flowed depending on how much integration was possible at a given moment. So in the late 1950s and early 1960s, we see integration into mainstream America reach a fever pitch. So less people are advocating for black power, or black nationalism. And then by the late 1960s and early 1970s, when we see that not work out exactly the way we thought it would, you see people kind of embrace more of these black power, black nationalist politics. But I want to emphasize that all of these tactics and strategies, ideas 
have all been existing within the Black community since the days of slavery. Really what most people see are just kind of spikes in support of one theory or the other based on what's going on nationally. One such activist who was increasingly drawn to Black nationalism was civil rights leader and chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael. So Stokely Carmichael was actually born in Port of Spain, Trinidad. He came to the U.S., lived in New York, and it was there that he first realized nonviolent direct action or first encountered nonviolent direct action. He goes to Howard University and eventually quits school to join the movement. He goes down south working for voting rights and civil rights, but is often frustrated because even as he tries to follow the rules, even as he tries to integrate into democratic politics, he sees Black people frustrated at every turn. So it's these kind of moments of disillusionment that take Carmichael and say, maybe we should stop trying to engage in, you know, kind of interracial politics. And instead, we should try to focus just on our own communities, that community control and self-determination and self-defense we're talking about. So after this moment, we often call that moment the Atlantic City Challenge, he goes into Alabama and he starts to organize the original Black Panther Party, along with groups in Lowndes County, Alabama. And the idea here is extraordinarily simple. Lowndes County is majority Black. So why shouldn't the school board coordinator be Black? Why shouldn't the medical examiner be Black? Why shouldn't the tax assessor be Black? Why shouldn't the mayor be Black? And so he works alongside local folks in Lowndes County to basically run all Black candidates for local county seats. And it is during this particular time that he really starts to transform his understanding from nonviolent integrationist politics into a more um, separatist, Black community-controlled form of politics. It is also during this time when he popularizes the term Black power, and it kind of takes off across the nation. But I want to emphasize that even though he is somebody who kind of put that term on the map in the media sense, Black people, particularly local Black Southerners, have been practicing these ideals for some time. Black power swept across the country, but not everyone responded positively. I asked Ashley how Martin Luther King Jr., one of the most vocal champions of integration, felt about this changing atmosphere. I think that King felt it was an unwise turn in the movement. And that doesn't mean that he didn't understand viscerally why Black people were turning to this. It doesn't mean that he didn't understand that people were living in overcrowded inner city areas, that they were still not being able to vote, that they still were segregated, that life still was very difficult for them. But I think he think that it was not the best tactic or approach, right, for getting Black people civil and human rights. That said, I would say that he, in his final years of life, moved closer to somebody like Carmichael. They never fully agreed, right? I want to emphasize that. But move closer to someone like Carmichael in his critique of American democracy, American lawmakers, and really, again, thinking broadly about the Vietnam War, about American imperialism and intervention in other places. But I still think that he was dedicated to this idea of, of civil rights, nonviolent integrationist politics, but certainly understood why such a separatist, community-oriented approach to politics for Black people was appealing for so many. White America's reaction was markedly different. It was one largely of fear. The FBI even launched a counterintelligence program which used surveillance, infiltration and violence to try and destroy Black organisations, including those that embraced Black power. 
like I said, Black power in its basic sense, just like Black nationalism, are representations of community control, self-defense, self-determination, right? Self-respect. But anytime you mix something like power and Black, people take it and the media distorted it and made it to be something that was very angry, very nihilistic, very aggressive, right? All of those stereotypes that you might attach to Black people, particularly Black men, were, were played upon in the media, particularly after Stokely Carmichael said, you know, we're going to start saying Black power. There were, though, some white organizers, particularly in groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, for which Stokely Carmichael was a member and eventually the leader of, who understood what Black people were trying to say. They were simply just saying, we want to organize ourselves and lead ourselves in our own communities. And we'd like for white people to do the same thing. But by and large, it was, it was not taken well. One group that was particularly feared by white America was the Black Panthers. They were created within a matter of months together, but um, the original Black Panther Party is in Lowndes County, Alabama. They said it was a group of local level Alabamians who were using that as their party name to run an all black slate of candidates for county boards. They used the Panther symbol as an opposite kind of to the rooster or hen symbol that was uh, the Democratic Party down there. Stokely Carmichael was a key part of this Lowndes County Black Panther Party. He helped the local folks organize there. And then he went on speaking tours talking about, you know, what they were doing in Lowndes County. When he went to the Bay Area in San Francisco, California, two people, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, heard about what they were doing in Lowndes County from him and from others. And they took the symbol the Black Panther, and created the Black Panther Party that most folks know in October of 1966. So all within a couple of months, they're coming together. So the Lowndes County Black Panther Party was really just a political party for local level organizing. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, created by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in Oakland, was a Black power or Black nationalist political party that went national and eventually even global. They were defined by their 10-point plan, which includes very basic demands like shelter, food, the end of mass incarceration, you know, housing for folks. And they were also very anti-police brutality. They actually, that was kind of their number one cause when they first got started. But what is really quite remarkable about the Black Panther Party is that in a few short years, it went from kind of a small band of folks in Oakland, California, to a national and even international organization and moved away from kind of police brutality into creating what they called survival programs. And really what this is, is, is a social safety net. The party had free shoe programs, free food programs, free health clinics, a church, a school, an ambulance, because ambulances wouldn't come to black neighborhoods. So people were dying because they couldn't make it to the hospital. A bus to go see loved ones who had been incarcerated. And we know that black people were incarcerated at higher rates, right? In the absence of the state or the state failing them, basically Panther chapters across the country created a social safety net for Black people. And perhaps most well-known was their free breakfast program, where they fed kids before they went to school. And, and that has been integrated in many schools in the United States today, understanding that with a full belly, you learn better and you succeed better at life. So it really started as you know a small band of folks really trying to defend their community and became quite a remarkable national international organization dedicated to, to really helping people survive on a broad scale. key inspiration for the Panthers, and for Black power more widely, 
was the late Malcolm X. There is probably no one person who more influenced the rise of the Black Power movement than Malcolm X. And just to give you an example based on these two organizations that we've talked about today, Malcolm X was Huey Newton and Bobby Seale's kind of patron saint. They saw him as the most shiny example of standing up to white supremacy and political authority. And also took some of his ideas in the sense that I talked about a 10-point plan that the Black Panther Party had. And the subtitle of the 10-point plan was What We Want, What We Believe. They borrowed that from the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X, um, who also had a similar plan. Probably the primary difference between Malcolm X and Huey Newton is that they didn't want to be involved, or Huey Newton and Bobby Seale did not want to be involved in the Nation of Islam, the kind of religious portion. But the politics was right on brand. The Black Panthers also shared Malcolm X's emphasis on the connections between Black Americans and Black people around the world. As he shared the Nation of Islam and was moving towards creating the organization of Afro-American unity, he was really talking about Black people making connections with oppressed Black people all around the world, right? And uh, some of us might call that a pan-Africanist approach. As Black power evolved and these younger folks took over the mantle, they were increasingly adopting a critique of the way America treated other places. And professing real solidarity and sometimes visiting and actually, you know, engaging in kind of material solidarity with black and brown people all over the world. Um, We see this through the Panther Party. We see this through activists taking trips to Africa. We have some folks, including Mae Mallory, who relocated to Tanzania, actually, to organize and be amongst African peoples. So that kind of anti-imperialism global approach that Malcolm move towards towards the end of his life was a key part of many of the groups who were organizing in the Black Power era. And when Malcolm X died, this inspired them to get more politically motivated. The same could be said of that US organization by Milana Karenga. He also was a student of Malcolm X's um, and an admirer of him. And Malcolm X often preached about Black people's need to distance themselves from white cultural standards, right? Whether that be hair, dress, names, practices. And you're seeing that come through in creating new rituals and ideas for Black people in America. So there was no no part of the Black power movement that different groups didn't seize upon, that didn't have some roots in Malcolm and Malcolm's beliefs and Malcolm's manifestations. Next time, in the final installment of the series will be reflecting on the long legacy of the civil rights movement, both in the United States and around the world. Many thanks to my experts for this episode, Clarence Lang, Susan Welsh-Dean of the College of the Liberal Arts and Professor of African-American Studies at Penn State, who is currently writing a biography of Malcolm X, and Ashley Farmer, an Associate Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. The historical consultant for this series is Adrienne Lent-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who specialises in African American history and 20th century history. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening.